Hello and welcome to the Mix Era Podcast. I'm your host, DJ B. Wise. This is a podcast where we talk about hip-hop from boom bap to trap. We are hip-hop enthusiasts of multi-generation. Tonight, we'll be speaking on the evolution of hip-hop. My co-hosts this evening are going to be Kev, Terrell, and Malcolm. So I'm going to start with the precursor, the pioneers, and the creators of art form of hip-hop. So as we go into hip-hop history, as I did as much research as I could, we had to go beyond the three pillars of hip-hop. And I'd like to start off with the disco era, because the disco era is really what started everything for us. So the disco era in New York uh, was exclusionary at that time in the early 70s. So the poor black kids in Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, they couldn't, in Bronx, they couldn't go up to Manhattan and party with the uh, rich people in Manhattan. So they had to figure out a way to do something for themselves. So some of the DJs that were DJing the clubs in uh, Manhattan who were a part of the uh, boroughs were, uh, you had um, KC, the Prince of Soul, and he was the uh, first uh, DJ to really talk over the music during his uh, set. And then you had the new sound uh, with DJ uh, Hank Spoon. He was also one of the first pioneers in the Manhattan area to, era to uh, disco era to speak on uh, over his mixes as he was doing them uh, at the club, which gave way to people like Grandmaster Flowers picking up that style. Also, hip-hop's precursor was the reggae dance hall era. Uh, so a lot of immigrants from uh, Jamaica came across, and they were um, part of the dance hall era. So a gentleman named King Charles came over, and he was able to build this really nice uh, DJ setup. And um, so in dance hall, they had something called the, the MC Toast. So he would allow uh, young men to get on the mic when he was DJing in the park. And that's how some of the background of MCing started. So you would get on King Charles uh, set and you would say, you know, who you were or you'd call out people in the um, in the party that you knew. And then you would talk about King Charles. So that led us into people like DJ uh, Hollywood, who was the first DJ to kind of rhyme with his talking over his a set. He started also, uh, DJ Hollywood started the call and response era. And call and response is a big part of hip hop, which led into Fatback Band having King Tim III as their DJ and them doing call and response and their record making, which leads us to uh, Grandmaster Flowers, who was really the first Grandmaster. I know we, you know, if you're part of the golden era, you heard of a lot of uh, Grandmasters. But Grandmaster Flowers was the first. He is the one who kind of started even thinking about what breakbeats were. He didn't really utilize breakbeats, but he, he thought about it and he was able to uh, mix in on the one. So he mixed in on the one. That was one of the first things he was he brought to the um, hip hop era. So also you had Pete DJ Jones. He was the first DJ to really mix in R&B. So before you had them mixing just disco and instrumental disco. And Pete DJ Jones, he started mixing R&B and soul. And he also started using the echo chamber, which really became a huge part of the hip hop era as Africa Bambada and um, uh, Grandmaster Flash started pushing the culture forward. So after that, uh, also DJ Hollywood again, bringing in some things like throw your hands in the air and somebody say ho, 
those were coined by DJ Hollywood. He was really a big fixture in the early 70s, really before hip-hop was really invented, but I won't say invented. Let me not say invented. Before hip-hop was really mainstream, where people actually knew the words hip-hop, DJ Hollywood was doing call and response in uh, block parties and in clubs. So hip-hop, we all, as we all know, has five elements to it. And the elements are graffiti, DJing, MCing, B-boy, and also fashion. And along with fashion comes an attitude. Hip-hop is about an attitude. It's about living it. So you can't have one without the other. So moving on beyond that, DJ Hollywood also had competitors. Competitors like Eddie Chiba. Eddie Chiba was voted number one DJ in the New York area. Also, DJ um, Grandmaster Flowers was also uh, three years in a row. He won uh, New York Metro number one DJ. So as these kind of uh, DJs were gaining uh, popularity in the clubs in the Manhattan area, they had to have MCs. So you had MCs come along like Lovebug, Starsky, uh, Eddie Chiba was also a DJ, but he was also uh, MC and he started MCing on the mic. And uh, this was kind of like the rudimentary style of rap or MCing. The first DJ to take break beats and blend them together, which is called the merry-go-round style, was DJ Cool Hurt. He was a Jamaican immigrant, was living in uh, the projects in South Bronx, and his sister wanted to have a birthday party. So 1520 Cedric Avenue, they rented out the uh, community space and they threw a party that night. And the night that they threw his sister the birthday party, Cool Herc said, hey, I'm going to try something new, guys. I'm going to do what I call the merry-go-round. So he took break beats from James Brown, break beats from other artists, and ran them all together to make a, con a continuous break beat with no mute, with no vocals. And it allowed the B-boys, the break boys or breakers, to dance to the music while the break was playing. And that was the start of hip-hop in its rawest form. And uh, as the, uh, DJ Cool Hurt got more popular, he had a gentleman called Coke Rock, and he would come to the party. And basically, Coke Rock, in an interview that I watched, said, you know, he would initially tell people if they, you know, had to go out and um, their mom was there or... He would do slick stuff like if one of his friends was trying to impress a girl, he would say, hey, such and such, your car is blocking the, the fire exit, go get your car, which would make, you know, the young ladies think that the gentleman had a car, which he probably didn't because nobody had cars back then in the, the Bronx area. Also, he would talk about DJ Cool Herc on the mic. Some rhymes, not always, but that was really the elementary start of emceeing on the mic. So Love Bus Starsky comes along after Coke Rock, and he is the guy who comes up with things like, he coined the phrases like Boogie Down Bronx, Money Earning uh, Manhattan, stuff like uh, Do or Die bed -Sty. And he also, in his emceeing, he and Hollywood from, Fantastic, from um, Grandmaster Flash and the Fierce Five would do this little routine where they would do hip and then hop and hip and hop. And that's really where the word hip hop comes from, as far as hip hop is concerned. That was from Love Buck Starsky, who was an MC for several of the DJs in that prominent DJs in that era. And then following him comes along Busy B Starsky. 
who really came to fame through the movie Wild Style. Busy B was able to put some music on wax, and he was, uh, again, the rudimentary parts of rap. So he would rhyme words together, talking about the DJ, talking about himself. Then we come to the three pillars of hip-hop, which are DJ Cool Herc, Africa Bambada, Grandmaster Flash. DJ Cool Herc was on one side of the Bronx, and Africa Bambada was on the other side of the Bronx. And the Bronx isn't that big when you're talking about hip-hop as far as music in the park. So Africa was a part of a gang called the Black Spade. They actually were the leader of the Black Spade. And um, they would go around... And, you know, you travel throughout the area and they would have these block parties. Well, he heard DJ Cool Herc and Coupla Rock doing their thing out in the park. And he was like, oh, I can put that together. So he came up with some money and he put his own system together. And then he started doing block parties. And that was over the Bronx River projects. He took his information that he was getting from the Black Spades and turned those people into the Zulu Nation. And then the Zulu Nation turned into the uh, Universal Zulu Nation. He's the one who actually came up with the tenets of hip-hop, which is peace, love, and unity. That was his thing. And um, between Cool uh, Herc and Africa Bambada, they were really trying to get the young people to just be in a space where they could where they could have fun and enjoy themselves and not be out committing crimes or doing gang stuff. That was the biggest reason for starting this uh, thing called hip-hop. So then... Grandmaster Flash, he's a little bit younger. He comes along and he sees Africa Bambada doing his thing. He sees DJ Cool Herc doing his thing. And he and Grand uh, Wizard Theodore were two D- young DJs coming up under the uh, you know Africa Bambada era. Again, we're talking about months, weeks, not a long time in between people getting enough money together to put their own DJ systems together. Grand Wizard Theodore figured out that if you took your hand and you pushed the record, it would make a sound, and he called it scratching. So he was the first one to really come up with that. But he was also, you know, a friend of Grandmaster Flash. So Grandmaster Flash took that information, and then he learned how to scratch on the one. And then once you learn how to scratch on the one, Grandmaster Flash came up with cutting. And that means he was able to transition from one beat to another beat of a different song on the one. And that was uh, Grandmaster Flash's contribution to the whole DJing thing. He really pushed DJing into the next level. All while this is going on, you had some groups in the area who were forming. One of the most prominent groups was the Cold Crush Brothers. And the Cold Crush Brothers, they had people like uh, the Fantastic uh, five and they had funky four plus one more that had sh- uh, sh- uh, Rock, which was the first female MC in it. And they were all local uh, groups that were just battling one another. They really didn't have any, you know, there was no records going on at this time. So if you were known in your neighborhood as the best group, that was a big thing. So the Cold Crush Brothers consisted of Grandmaster Cass, Almighty KG, Easy AD, DJ Charlie Chase, MC DL and DJ Tony Tone. Uh, these dudes were, you know, the cream of the crop as far as the crews that were rapping at that period in time, and that which leads us into them doing a battle at Harlem World. And that battle was in eight, 1981, which was after 
some things that happened. We'll bounce to that in a moment. So as these groups were forming, there was a lot of buzz around the New York area about this new thing called hip hop. Young lady from Sugar Hill Records wanted to make an album with some rappers. So she went around searching the city, ended up in New Jersey, and that's when she met Big Bag Hank, Master D, Wonder Mike, and asked them if they wanted to make an album. They meet, and then that evening, they go into the studio and they make an album for Sugar Hill Records, which ended up being called Sugar Hill Gang. And their first song was Rapper's Delight, which became the first hip-hop song on Wax. And that was in 1979. As a part of that rap, that's when we bounced back to the Cold Crush Brothers. One of the originators of the Cold Crush Brothers, uh, Grandmaster Kaz, was being managed by Big Bank Hank, who ended up becoming a part of the Sugar Hill Gang. And he went to Grandmaster Kaz and said, hey, man, you got some rhymes that I can do? Not knowing that he was going to do it on wax or make an album with it. So Grandmaster Cass says, hey, yeah, I got something on the table there. You just grab that piece of paper and you can do whatever you want with it. I got I got hundreds of raps. So the rap that Grandmaster Cass gives Big Bang Hank becomes a part of the first rap album that's still being played to this day, and that's Rapper's Delight. So with that success of the Sugar Hill Gang in 79, that pushes forward groups like uh, the Treacherous Three, again, the Funky Four plus one more, gets the first solo artist from all of this becomes Curtis Blow. In 1980, he puts out his album, The Breaks. The success of The Breaks, uh, Curtis Blow ends up becoming the first heartthrob in hip-hop. Also in 79, signed by Sugar Hill Records, was a group called Sequence. And Sequence had a song called Funk You Up, which was very popular, surprisingly by R&B heads, Angie Stone, a young Angie Stone, was in the Sequences. And Funk You Up was, I think it went to, uh, it was in the top 40 of the R&B charts. So also in 1980, one of the groups I told you about earlier, Funky 4 Plus One More, were able to put out an album called That's the Joint with Shaw Rock, which was very, very positive and going to really push the envelope, having a female on wax after having these, you know, four albums out with, only males. Then in 1981, we had the Treacherous Three do Body Rock, which was very, very instrumental as far as Kumo D becoming popular in hip-hop society. So Kumo D and Busy B, Starsky, have a battle in 1981 at Harlem World. Harlem World was a a big venue for a lot of the hip-hop culture. Uh, Harlem World and um, Latin Quarters. So the Kumo D and Busy B battle is recorded on tape. So young people would bring tapes to the club, bring um, boom boxes to the club, and they would record the battles as they were taking place live. And then those mixtapes would make it into the street, and then those would just spread around like wildfire. Again, this is how I came into rap in 1981, where my cousin brought me a tape from New York, and then that's when I heard the Busy B and Kumo D battle. So in 1982, we're going to jump forward just a little bit, Africa Bambada puts out the um, Soul Sonic Force album, which just lights up the airways. He becomes hugely popular in Europe, and um, that moves us forward into probably the first um, album that really uh, talked about 
the life of uh, black people during the 1980s in New York, which was Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five's album, The Message, which was a 12 inch in 1982. It was huge. It made it to the top 20 on R&B because there was no rap charts at that time. But moving forward, we go to 1983. You have Run DMC with their debut album, self-titled Run DMC. Then in uh, 1984, you have the Fat Boys that come out of Brooklyn with their debut album, which was very, very transforming as far as the art is concerned. Then we started getting into the years of when hip-hop really took off. And you get UTFO with Roxanne Roxanne in 1984. This album made it to the top 10 in the R&B charts, which was unheard of as far as rap was concerned, outside of the Sugar Hill Gang with their uh, first song. That song is then answered by Marley Marl and Roxanne Chante with Roxanne Revenge, which was just a few months later in 1984. So that was a hot, hot year for hip-hop. 84 was crazy. So going early into the year 1985, you had Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick. They were called the Get Fresh Crew at the time, and they put out uh, 12-inch uh, album that was called The Show, and the B-side was called Lottie Dottie. These two songs were monumental in the hip-hop world. The Show, still to this day, is probably one of the most popular songs in the hip-hop world. You can play it at a reunion, you can play it at a wedding, and people will usually dance to it. So also in 85, you had LL Cool J put out his first effort, which was uh, Radio. That album was the album that introduced a new solo male heartthrob to the masses. And the success of radio allowed LL to go on and do bad in 1986, which had I Need Love on it. And that then took him into the stratosphere because I Need Love went to number one on the R&B chart. Also in 86, you had Salt and Pepper that were produced by Herbie Lovebug. And they put out the song Push It. Push It was huge because you had two female MCs who were really getting it. And the beat was so crazy. Herbie Lovebug had much had a lot of success with his production. So also in 1986, you have Beastie Boys. Beastie Boys put out their album License to Ill in 1986. So on the heels of the success of Run DMC and LL Cool J, Def Jam is created. And Def Jam then puts out the Beastie Boys, which becomes the best-selling hip-hop album of all time during that era. That allowed uh, Def Jam to become one of the most powerful uh, record labels for hip-hop. So all along while this was going on, out on the West Coast, they had a, uh, they had some artists that were trying to get their foot in the game. So you had Egyptian Lover, who put out Egypt, Egypt in 1984. Everybody wanted a little piece of this hip-hop thing because it was so hot. So you go down south, and in 1986, you have Two Live Crew, who puts out their songs. <laughs> hey, we want some P, and throw that D. So with the popularity of the hip-hop genre going out west and going coming down south, it allowed for other artists to really start pushing through the doors. So in 1987, you come up with LL's Bad Album, and then you get KRS-One and Boogie Down Productions with Criminal Minded, which was a classic album 
by all magazines because at the time we only had Right On magazine, a couple other R&B magazines. They were floored by uh, KRS-One and Boogie Down Production. 87 was a great year for hip hop. Also in that year was one of my favorite albums of all time, Eric B. and Rakim's Paid in Full. Groundbreaking. The music still holds up to this day. Just absolutely amazing. Also in that year, there was the Native Tongue Movement was uh, started by the Jungle Brothers. And their first major hit was Jimbrowski in 1987. Then we jump back on the, on the west side of the country and you get Ice-T putting out Rhyme Pays and his uh, hit Six O'Clock in the Morning. And uh, that was in 87. And it was, you know, everybody trying to get their foot in the door with this super hot thing. As a side note, during all of this stuff, you had some great hip-hop epic movies that came out, which if you haven't seen them, you should check, check them out. I'll start with the main one, which is probably the most seen um, hip-hop movie of all time, which is Wild Style, which came out in 1983. Then you had Beat Street in 1984. You also had Breaking, which was a L.A. version of hip-hop in 1984. And then you had Crush Groove, which was Def Jam's attempt at doing a hip-hop movie in 1985. So moving on, we jumping into 1988. And in 1988, you had MC Shan, Audio 2 with Top Billing. Audio 2, that song ended up being a huge, huge uh, song for the culture. And it's actually still played to this day at many a, par at many a parties I have DJed. If you put that Audio 2 Top Billing song on, everybody's going to get out their seat. because that's a, that's a banger. So with Big Daddy Kane coming on the scene as a part of the Juice Crew, with his success, you get Molly Maul the same year dropping The Symphony. The Symphony is probably one of the best compilation songs ever put out with the Juice Crew. And that was Big Daddy Kane, Who G Rap, Craig G, and MC Shan to stop the violence that was also going on. Because again, hip hop is all about the violence and during this time in the, in the mid to late 80s you got the crack epidemic that's just ravishing new york and the rest of the rest of the country so the artists that had become popular during this time they came together to do a uh, effort called the stop the violence movement and they put out a song called uh, self-destruction in 1989 and it really raised money to help uh, with the violence and so also in 88 you get public enemy what it takes a nation of millions to stop us and you also get Bismarck Key with going off these are two pivotal albums public enemy bringing in the the political aspect to hip-hop and then you get Bismarck Key doing the funny side of rap with going off and one of the biggest songs on that album from from biz was picking boogers which ended up being like a really good hit for him so moving into tail end of 88 on the west side of town, you get Easy e and Easy does it So, again, West Coast is still representing. They're trying to do their thing. They're bringing it in. Also, as far as the storytellers, you get Dana Dane doing his effort with Dana Dane with Fame. And the song on there that was huge was Cinderella. Yeah. So, 88, you also had MC Light put out her effort. And on the west uh, side of town, you had west uh, side of the country, you had J.J. Fad. So the women are totally representing. So J.J. Fad comes with Supersonic in 88, and MC Light comes with Light as a Rock in 88. So 88 is really a popping year. 
Then on the dance side of town, because again, dance is always a big part of hip hop, you get Kid and Play with Too Hype. And they were also a part of the Herbie Lovebug group, you know, his um, production. You know, Herbie Lovebug produced Sweet Tea, Kid and Play, Salt and Pepper, Kwame. You know, he had a lot. Antoinette, he had a lot of uh, people under his net. Also on the West Side during that year, you have Too Short with Born to Mac. So again, now we're going from the lower, you know, the south side of, of uh, Los Angeles to the north side of California with the um, San Francisco Bay, Oakland area with Too Short doing Born to Mac. So again, everybody's trying to get in on this thing called hip hop. So back on the East Coast, you have them towards the end of the year in 88. One of the, another song that is still stands up to this day, Raw Bass and DJ Easy Rock with It Takes Two. This song is still played to this day. Uh, heavy, you know, heavy. Um, and lastly, in 88, you get Heavy D with Mr. Big Stuff. Heavy D was the first solo uh, kind of heavy set dude that was really a heartthrob in hip hop. So that was um, very pivotal for the time. So moving into 1989, you get Vanilla Ice with Ice Ice Baby. And that song was the first hip-hop song to make it to the number one seat on Billboard pop and stay there for more than three weeks. Then you move into Slick Rick did Children's Story in 1989, which was absolute masterpiece of storytelling. Also in 89, you get Queen Latifah coming on the scene with conscious rap, coming to my house. On the West Coast, you get Tone Loke with Wild Thing and Funky Cole Mordina, which both charted in the top 20 of the pop uh, pop chart. Then you get on the conscious end, you get De La Soul with Three Feet High and Rising in 1989. You also get the Molly Mall effort from Coogee Rap and DJ Polo, which really brings the gangster element from the East Coast onto the scene, which was Road to Riches. And that kind of closed out 1989 then we're moving into the 1990 started with my main man the the big fellas showing love chub rock jumps on the scene in 1990 also in 1990 you get the huge dose of uh consciousness with tribe called quest with their hit instinctive people's journey rhymes and beats which was just an amazing piece of work also in 90, you get more conscious rap. You get the X-Clan with To the East, Black. The West Coast gives you two bangers with uh, Digital Underground. That's the Bay Area doing sex packets. And that big song from that one, which ended up going to number one on the pop charts, was Humpty Dance. Then you get Ice Cube's solo effort, which was produced by Hank Shockley and his brothers at the Bomb Squad on the East Coast in 1990 which was America's Most Wanted. You also get another East Coast effort from another conscious group called Brand Nubian, All for One, which was really a game changer because they were not a part of the Native Tongues movement, which was really good to see. Then we slide into 1991 with Main Source. Main Source's Breaking Atoms was, by this time, we had uh, magazines like The Source for Hip Hop and they said that Main Source's Breaking Atoms uh, album was five star. 
and it also introduced us to the boy wonder Nas, Nazir Jones, on the uh, on that album. Also in '91, the South is coming back, showing their you know peeking their head out, and they're bringing you Ghetto Boys, what we can't be stopped, which had uh, my mind's playing tricks on me, which was number one R&B side. Also, you get an effort from Tupac that year with Tupacalypse and Brenda's Got a Baby, which hit number one on the R&B charts. Also, a young man out of Flint, Michigan, which brings in the Midwest, MC Breed had a real hit called Ain't No Future in Your Frontin' in 1991. Also, we get efforts from Naughty by Nature with OPP, which was very big game changer as far as the call and response part of hip hop. You also get another effort from the West Coast with Yo-Yo, which you can't play with my Yo-Yo in 91. You also get Black Sheep, who put their monumental stamp on hip hop with their effort in 91. And then sliding into 92, which is probably where I'm going to tail in off of this and go on to someone else. You get Dr. Dre's Chronic. Dr. Dre's Chronic in 92 was groundbreaking. Also in that year, on the conscious tip, you also get Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth with Mecca and Soul Brother. You also get efforts from EPMD with Strictly Business on the East Coast. You also get this interesting thing that just happens where you get rappers that came along who rapped offbeat with a style that was very unique, which was DOS Effects in 92 with their self-album, self title album DOS Effects. You also get in 92 DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince with Summertime, which is a monumental hit that has gone down in history and it is still played to this day strong. Then you get another effort from the South with Arrested Development in Tennessee, which was their conscious movement. And coming back on the East Coast, you get another conscious group coming along, which was Diggable Planets. And you also get Tribe with the Low End Theory and then their smash the scenario then the west coast is also still representing with my main man sir mix a lot where baby got back which was monumental it went on to uh, top the pop charts and i think it was number one for uh two weeks then we had the south showing up and then i'm gonna tail off on to uh kev but crisscross would jump and that was so so deaf which was jermaine dupree in the south so the south was representing to close out uh, 1992. We're going to move along into the golden era with my main man, Kev. So, Kev, go ahead and tell me what you know about the golden era of rap. The golden era. So, the majority of the 90s is, is considered the golden era. Um, A lot of people have different opinions as to why that is, but for the most part, we can say that some of the most impactful MCs kind of came out of that time period. You know, we're talking from like 93 to like 98. You know, we getting debut albums from Big, Ready to Die. You get, you know, two underrated albums from Tupac, Um, you know, before he became this uh, supposed troubled youth. You know, we get, you know, Snoop Dogg. I think that Snoop Dogg's first album, Doggy Style, doesn't get enough credit as it should. When you look at the 80s and you kind of look at the West Coast artists, they were these, what they call, what they considered gangster rap. But, you know, some of, some people in neighborhoods across America looked at it as conscious rap because it was their realities and their stories and what they were going through. 
even though you might might have been in Philly or New York, these California guys were telling a story that was very similar to theirs. Um, you had Ice T. He had very strong lyrical songs, and then you know you had Too Short. But then you know Tone Loke and Sir Mix a lot. They changed the pace up a little bit. What was the guy? Uh, there was another guy. So one hit wonder guy. I can't think of his name now. You know they kind of went back to more to the original hip hop where it was a more dancey, radio friendly song. But then Young MC, huh? Young MC. That's it. But you know, Dre breaking away from N.W.A. and dropping this Chronic album, which had these beats that were that were somewhat they were they were new to hip hop, but they weren't new, you know, across if you listen to a lot of music. And we we really never heard that sound before, but then you had Snoop with his flow, the way he flowed on these records, it was kind of like Dang, you know, these cats from the South have a lot to say, and then they have more to bring to the game. You know what I mean? Um, so you had that, but um, one of the things that, one of the things about the 90s, I think that a lot of people don't touch on is that we don't understand how dominant hip hop became in the 80s. It, it, it became this neighborhood music that transcended to radio because the pioneers were DJs and DJs worked at the radio stations. It's transcending to the radio. It still didn't mean a lot because it wasn't like, you know, we heard the, you heard these sounds at like 10 o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the afternoon. A lot of, you know, what was considered hip hop then was after eight, you know what I mean? And just to see a cat like the Sugar Hill Gang take this disco, breakbeat and make a rap record out of it and it and it carries over to Curtis Blow and it carries over to Grandmaster Fashion and the Furious Five who like you said before made this conscious record but it had this beat to as where you it hit you and you felt it but you felt so good that it, it didn't really bring you down in some way you know what I mean and the 90s kind of you know the 90s came, became this big business that dominated the music genre, whereas in the 80s, God, you know, you know, you had artists literally selling music, selling T-shirts out the trunk of their cars. They threw parties. They threw parties just to sell music. You know what I mean? And that was lost in the 90s. You know, you know, MCs would grind to get the major label deal and then they were happy with that. And with major labels controlling the music, it kind of took away from some of it. You know, yes, there were mainstream conscious artists, but for the most part, conscious artists went from being in the forefront in the 80s to being in the underground in the 90s. So it, it was kind of, it was weird. And then even though you had all these impactful MCs, it was, it was like a masterpiece who, you know, stayed independent, who work this incredible deal out to make all this money and cash money, you know, they built this movement in the South that couldn't stay hidden for long. So you had so many people in the 90s who were transcending the game, whereas they had different things to say, they had different sounds, they had different looks, they had different approaches to the game. You couldn't help but see how hip hop just became this 
you know, outdoor barbecue music to what dominated the airwaves. You know, more TV commercials had hip hop feels to them. More TV shows, you know, kids of all colors and ages were doing these made up rap songs on these these shows because of the impact that it had. And it was just incredible, you know. Like I said, you had Big, his first album. You had Pac's first album. Jay-Z came out. Nas came out. Snoop, the Wu-Tang, you know, De La Soul. They were doing a little bit in the 80s, but they didn't really hit they, you know, that peak until the 90s. Tribe became big in the 90s. Outkast, Eminem, and it was just so much, you know what I mean? And it's it still felt the day from what the 90s gave us. Not to take nothing away from nobody else, but there weren't, you didn't have so many sub-genres that you could look at from an 80s standpoint, and that's what the 90s gave us. You know, I, like I said, I, 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 I wish it didn't become so radio-friendly in the 90s, because I believe that, I believe hip-hop is a music that has a message and everyone's message should be heard it doesn't always you know like in today's time a lot of people kind of discredit what the the artists of today are saying because we we can't understand it we don't understand the message or we don't understand the delivery of the message but it's all it's all music it's all a message and it's all uh it's all a point you're trying to get across you know and you know the 90s gave us so much i mean you can take an artist like scarface who he can he can do a gangster you know a, a hood song in one you know at the beginning of his album and in the middle of his album he's telling you about you know going to see a doctor for a mental issue or he tried to kill himself because he was hurting so bad and then it, it gives you this it gives another side of the story to what people don't see because so many people feel like it's just them because there are not a lot of people who who they can embrace but it, it 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 was just a just voice, you know what I mean, and all that kind of led to the the late two thousands where, I mean the early two thousands where, you know the, this this big hard hitting message was kind of toned down, and if you really wasn't like a big fan of the underground, a lot of the mainstream stuff wasn't just hard hitting, you know. Like, you know, we should, we should, we should have, we should have never lost that. You know what I mean? So. Well, what are your thoughts on the um, cash money era along with um, the Rockefeller era, as well as uh, the bad boy era? They were, they were very important eras because it, it, it let the, it let the artists have a lot more control over their careers. Granted, some of these, you know, independent label owners weren't always on the up and up, but they didn't really, they didn't have too much of a pigeonhole on their artists. You know, Jay-Z couldn't have made reasonable doubt on like a RCA or Arista Records. Let's be real. He had to go independent because a major label wouldn't sign him. You know, you know, Master P had to sell sell records out the trunk of his car, move to another state, um, lucked up on some money, and was able to develop this career. It was all for like Cash Money, No Limit, Bad Boy, Rockefeller gave us four different ways to attack the music business. 
And because all four of these different elements were a part of hip hop, it secured the dominance of hip hop. It secured how these brown skinned men and women were able to create this music that not too many non-brown skinned men and women could actually take over or have a lot of say so about. So, you know, a, a, a white hip hop artist is normally pushed to the forefront because they're still rare. And even if, you know, that white hip hop artist make two albums that are halfway decent, it's like, oh my God, this person is great. You know, and because we still don't see too many white artists, too many white MCs, you know what I mean? Or even white MCs who actually can have an impact. Because for the most part, I mean, what we've seen lately is they're more than a gimmick. You know, in the night, and, and uh, be, to be all honest, independent rap should have took over the 90s, but it didn't. But white artists were just like an independent rap. It was kind of like a gimmick. And, and I think that's what hurts. I think that's, that's something that a lot of people don't really look at. It hurt. It actually hurt the game. But you see so many. You still see Jay-Z. And, you, and we talk. We, I mean, right now, Tupac and Biggie are dead. And we still talk about them like they just came out. You know what I mean? That's how big they were. But the game didn't want them to be that big, though, which is weird. All right. Sounds good. Um, So we're going to move into some homework that you were given last week by Young Terrell. And I uh, want to get your feelings on music and effect of Juice World and Pop Smoke. I originally said that those albums I couldn't really get through. And I had to realize that I wasn't, I didn't give them a chance. And I kind of looked at it as a, a old man or a parent. But when I really sat down and listened to them, they weren't that bad. I'll start with Pop Smoke's last album. It it was, I it wasn't. You know, I didn't expect what I heard. I, I was kind of thinking it was going to be like a lot of auto-tune and a lot of these slow beats, but it really wasn't. It didn't really kind of get repetitive to me until like halfway through the album. It was like a song I was listening to. I was like, wait, this sounds like the first song. I was like, is it over? Is it repeating? And I had to look and it, and it's, it just, you know, it had, the rhythm was the same and the lyrical content was the same than an earlier song you know i was able to make it to the end you know if i had to rate it i would say three stars maybe you know it sucks what happened to him in life you know that he wasn't able to really have a longer career because of uh, who he is and that you know that's life juice world's album uh i i, I think i enjoyed that album more and i'll say and, and let me say this um, the intro to the album kind of gave me a blueprint of what to expect. And you don't get a lot of that nowadays from the young artists. So, you know, hearing that, that I'm, a, you know, I'm looking forward to a lot of somewhat depressing music was kind of, you know, to get that up front was great because I don't feel like I have to suffer through something expecting something else. I wish he could have changed the tone up of the album later on instead of just being so you know stuck on this mental issue that he was having it, it, i mean the tone changed later but it was just i guess i was just tired of listening to all these slower paced songs and and i was just like all right when it's going to be over it wasn't bad either it wasn't that bad that i might pro i probably will listen to juice world's album 
again before I would pop smokes. You know, I give it like a three and a half rating. And it's crazy because I didn't even know he had passed away until like after I listened to the album. Because I wanted to see, you know, the impact or reviews and everything. And and then, you know, I looked it up and it was the first thing they said was he passed away from overdose. And I was just like, oh, gosh, like I see why this album was so depressing and, and, and the tone of it. You know, I, it gave me a better understanding of where these younger guys are coming from. Um, it's sad. You know, it's sad that they feel that way. It's sad that they go through this stuff. I wish that, you know, I wish that adults would embrace them more. It's not the first time that we, we've we gotten this in hip-hop, but I also wish that these newer guys would kind of embrace artists before them that went through the same thing, that talked about the same content. content and it, you know, it, it, I think it would kind of be like a smoother transition because had like a Hobson or a Scarface or a 3-6 Mafia, they kind of dealt with the mental health or depression and all that. But it wasn't, it, you know, that might have been a main topic, but it wasn't the only thing. So you get, you had these albums where it was, okay, this mental problem might be the main thing, but we get other things. You know, they kind of give you a song to show their lyrical talent too. And, you know, I understand, you know, if, if you want to use music as an avenue to express yourself, that's fine. But sometimes I want a little more, you know, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm asking for too much, but I say it's about a three and a half, you know, I, I'll probably play it again. Cool. Cool. I respect that. 